Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. It's found on page 822 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Matthew 16, it's found on page 822 in the Pew Bible. We're going to look at verses 13 through 20. 13 through 21 is what I'll read. Um, primarily, we'll be here, and then we'll also be in Acts 1 and 2. So I'll have you turn there later. But uh, I'm going to read for us, just to give, get a little context here. Uh, Matthew 16, 13 through 21. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to your word. We ask that you would help us understand it so that we might rightly apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. A member of a certain church who had previously been attending services regularly stopped going. After a few weeks, the pastor decided to visit him. It was a chilly evening. The pastor found the man at home alone, sitting before a blazing fire. Guessing the reason for his pastor's visit, the man welcomed him, led him to a big chair near the fireplace, and waited. The pastor made himself comfortable, but said nothing. In the grave silence, he contemplated the play of the flames around the burning logs. After some minutes, the pastor took the fire tongs, carefully picked up a brightly burning ember, and placed it to one side of the hearth all alone. Then he sat back in his chair, still silent. The host watched all this in quiet fascination. As the one lone ember's flame diminished, there was a momentary glow, and then its fire was no more. Soon it was cold and dead as a doornail. Not a word had been spoken since the initial greeting. Just before the pastor was ready to leave, he picked up the cold, dead ember and placed it back in the middle of the fire. 
Immediately, it began to glow once more with the, with the light and warmth of the burning coals around it. As the pastor reached the door to leave, his host said, Thank you so much for your visit and especially for the fiery sermon. I shall be back to church next Sunday. <laughs> this story gets at the heart of the need for the church and of the identity of the church. Because if we think that being a Christian is something that we are without the church or something that we can do on our own, then we have misunderstood the very nature and identity of the church. And that's what I want us to address this morning. The church, by its very nature, implies involvement, participation, connectedness, and interdependence. The very identity of the church exposes a consumer-driven Lone Ranger mentality that is so prevalent in our own day. Right? We, we see that with this illustration, with this story. We think that we can exist on our own. And when we consider the, the early chapters in Acts, we get a picture of the birth of the church, which we've been looking at over the last several weeks. And this picture gives us a, a, and reveals to us the very nature and identity of the church. And that's what I want to draw your attention to. I want to answer the question, what is the identity of the church? And then how do we apply this to our lives? And there's so much that could be said about this. And the implications for this are massive for how we do church, right? Who we are, who we are affects what we do. Our identity impacts our function. There's many metaphors that, that Scripture uses that we could unpack concerning the church. Right? For example, the church is the family of God. The church are the people of God, the, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the flock of God, the new humanity, the new assembly. The list goes on. This could be a sermon series. I thought about this this week. Here's a sermon series in itself. Let's go through the different images and metaphors of the church. Or it could be a personal Bible study, right? Just study the various images that the scriptures use to describe the church. So, all that to say, what am I going to focus on? Two, two metaphors, ultimately, that I want us to see this morning. And we're going to ask the question, what is the identity of the church? And here's my quick, short, not fully developed definition of the church, right? Because there's so much more that we can say about it. And here's what I will say this morning. The church is a community of believers in Jesus Christ who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The church is a community of believers in Jesus Christ who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And there's much more, much more that Scripture reveals about this. But I want to unpack these two images and then in my last point, how do we apply this? What are the practical implications for us as individuals and as a church? So first, the church, here's the picture. The church is God's new community. The church is God's new community. It is a community of believers in Jesus Christ. 
If you were to look up the word church in a Greek dictionary, ecclesia, you would find that it could be, it means or could be translated assembly or gathering. It is an assembly of people. It is a gathering of people. It is a congregation. It is a community of people. That's what the word means. And the first reference to this word in the New Testament is found in Matthew 16, 18, which is why I had us read this passage. In this passage, Jesus asked his followers, who do people say the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? To which Peter, as the voice of the apostles, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus acknowledges that they had received this, that he had received this from God the Father. God made this known to him. God revealed it to him. And this, this becomes a turning point in the story in this gospel. Because it is at this point when Jesus now tells them that he must go to Jerusalem to, to suffer and die on the cross and to rise again. And here, here's what Jesus says, right? In Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, now here it is, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this is the first reference to the church, to the assembly, to the community that Christ himself would build. This assembly, this, this community of people would, would know Christ personally, right? Just as Peter had confessed that Jesus, who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, he's proclaiming who Jesus is unlike those that were around him in that day. Well, some say you're just a prophet. Well, who do you say I am? You're the Christ. So they know him. They know who he is. Their identity is shaped by him. Jesus would build an assembly of believers, of followers. By his death and resurrection, he would establish a new community. It would be a new community because notice what Jesus says here. I will build my church. Future tense. Which implies that it hadn't been established yet, right? I will build my church. I will build it. It was something that Jesus would do in the future. And we see this played out in Acts as the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself being the cornerstone. And Jesus not only is going to do this in the future, he will do it, right? He, he is making a promise here to build his church. It will succeed, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice also here, this future element, it's new. Notice the use of the word church. I've already told you what it means. Assembly or gathering or congregation or community. 
It's connected to the Old Testament assembly of Israel. You can imagine these Jewish men, these disciples of Jesus, they're, they're hearing him speak these words, and certainly the images of the Old Testament are coming to their, their minds. In the Old Testament, God's people were described as an assembly. They would gather together and assemble to hear the word of God on Mount Sinai. This is where we see the, the great assembly. You recall in Exodus how the people of Israel gathered together at the foot of the mountain as God made a covenant with them, right? Exodus 19 through 24. And then in Deuteronomy 4.10, we read this. On the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather, or assemble, or hold an assembly. Here's the word. This is the word that we use for the church, for church. Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words I think this is fascinating. That I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. Deuteronomy 9.10, Moses says this, And the Lord gave the two tablets of stone, right? The Ten Commandments. The two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you. On the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly. Same word. Now in our text, Jesus promises to build his church, his assembly. And they would consist of his followers. The church is a community of believers in Jesus Christ which is connected to and continues in the pattern of God's people in the Old Testament. So there are similarities between Israel and the church, and there are differences. There are distinctions which we see in, in the book of Acts. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1, page 909. 909. I want us to see some of these distinctions. So prior, so context of Acts, right? Prior to his ascension, Jesus gathers his disciples together and gave them a mission. We looked at that last week in verse 1-8, right? Go and bear witness to who Jesus is, right? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They're given this mission to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. And just after his ascension, in Acts 1, 12 through 26, Matthias is chosen to replace Judas as the 12th disciple. For those of you who are studying hermeneutics and biblical interpretation, you might be wondering, what's going on here? Why the 12? Why do you need 12? You can't help but notice the connection between the 12 disciples and the 12 sons of Israel 
We're called to be a blessing to the nations. It's there. And, uh, just a side note as well, even at Pentecost, what happens? Everyone can start to understand each other's language, right? They speak different languages. Now they understand what's being said. Can't help but notice the connection between the Tower of Babel and Genesis chapter 11 as well. So here, here, here we are. There's a connection, right? After Matthias is chosen in Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So here's the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, all together in one place. And the Holy Spirit is then poured out on them. And then Peter proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter re- people receive the word, they believe it, and then they're added to their number. So it's an assembly filled with believers. And then we have this summary statement. Go ahead and look at chapter 2, verse 42. 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So they're added to their number. Verse 42, here's a summary statement. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and, all, and had all things in common. The passage goes on to describe this community of believers, how they shared things in common, how they met together, how they praised God and had favor with all the people. And then the Lord adds to their number. And then throughout the book of Acts, as Jews and Gentiles then placed their faith in Christ, they were included in the church, and they were added to the local assemblies. So they would gather together locally in local assemblies, which was a manifestation of the universal church. Right? Each local church, this local church, this gathering at Pleasant Ridge, is a picture of the end-time gathering of all God's people in Christ. Which is one of the reasons, this is just a side note, but it's one of the reasons I love that we have all different ages here at church. You're getting a picture of what our end time gathering with God's people is going to be like. They don't look the same. don't talk the same. We're all different ages. It's awesome. Awesome. So the church is a community of believers in Jesus Christ which assembled regularly to hear God's word and be built up in the Lord by one another. So it's a community. It's God's new community. Second, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is a community of believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's at this point where we start to see some of these Distinctions, this discontinuity between the gathering of and the assemblies of God's people in the Old Testament and those in the New. Okay, so so is Israel the church? No. There's connections, right? Similar pattern. There's distinctions as well. There's continuity and there's discontinuity. In about three weeks, we'll perhaps address this in my Sunday school class. We can start to see some of this. So, maybe you want to come to Sunday school if you haven't been coming to Sunday school. 
Just my little plug for Sunday school. <laughs> In Acts 2, as the disciples gathered together, in one place, and as the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, the Jews who were in Jerusalem heard the disciples, and some began to question them. Peter then replies by quoting Joel, the prophet Joel, verses 17 through 21. So look with me now at 17 through 21. And read this, these verses here. And in the last days, but this this. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, verse 16, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. With this response from Peter, we recognize a unique transition period has just taken place. What was prophesied in the Old Testament concerning the last days had dawned in the coming of Jesus. The prophecy was being fulfilled in the presence of God's people. Jesus had ushered in this age to come, this new covenant, and now the Holy Spirit is, is being poured out on all those within the new covenant community. You see, in the Old Testament, Moses longed for this day. In Numbers 11... Elders were appointed to help Moses. The Lord said to him, I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. The spirit was then given to these men, these 70 of them, and as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. And then it gets reported back to Moses. What's happening here? To which he replies, here's, here's his, his, his response. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? This was the hope. This was the expectation of the Old Testament prophets. That a day would come and the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all those within the covenant community so that they might obey God. You see, in the Old Testament, Israel was a mixed community filled with believers and unbelievers. And there were only a select few that had the Holy Spirit, right? Generally, we think of the prophets, the priests, and the kings, and then a few others, right? We saw this in Judges, how the, how the Spirit was, was empowering these deliverers. We've seen this on, on Wednesday nights, how the Holy Spirit was taken from Saul and then given to David, right? You've seen that. When David sins, we see his plea for mercy. And what, what does he pray? What does he plead for? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And now, Peter proclaims the prophecy is coming to pass. 
And they were all witnesses to this with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all the believers. And this is the testimony that we have in Acts. People believe the gospel, they receive the Holy Spirit, they're baptized and then added to the church. And this promise was not just for Israel, but it was for the Gentiles. In Acts 10, while Peter was proclaiming the word, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. Oh, that that would happen when I proclaim the word, right? When we proclaim the word to unbelievers, that the Holy Spirit would fall upon them and believe. Acts 10, while Peter's proclaiming the word, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. The Jewish believers were amazed because, here's why, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was coming to pass as Jews and Gentiles trusted in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit would dwell within all those who believe in Christ. God's presence now resides in his people, right? Which draws our attention to the way the New Testament describes the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence is now in his people, not just in a place like Solomon's temple. As we see in as we see that we, and we see this here, that we as individuals, as the church, are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Right? 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul continues in chapter 6, Do you not know that your body, so now individually, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Ephesians 2, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Christ himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. With this imagery, the church is now seen as the, as the dwelling place of God. The church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, right? The community of believers and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God's presence now resides in us. Like the tabernacle and then the temple in the Old Testament, God's presence now dwells, didn't just dwell among the people, now it dwells in us because Christ is the true temple. Those who are united to Jesus by faith can be described as the temple of God, right? So why are we the temple? Because Christ is a true temple. In John chapter 1 and 2, what does Jesus say? What do we, we read there? In John chapter 1, in him, the whole fullness, actually a different passage, the whole fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Right? So in Christ, God dwelt among us. John chapter 1. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten full of grace and truth, John 1, 14. 
And then Jesus cleanses the temple. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Jesus is pointing to himself as the true temple. So the church is a community of believers in Christ indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are God's new community and we are the temple, God's temple. Third and finally, so here's where we get practical. Third question now is this. What are the practical implications for us as individuals and as a church, right? So how do we, how do we take this and apply it to our lives? Four implications, four ways to apply this to our lives. It's very practical. First, belong. Belong. Since the church is a community of believers in Jesus Christ, then the first practical point that we can make is to trust in Christ. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, place your faith in Jesus Christ in order to belong to the community of believers. Trust in him. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And if you trust in him, you belong to God's people. And this becomes publicly recognized and affirmed by a local church through membership. Right? So as a practical point, this means that our membership here at Pleasant Ridge comprises of believers in Jesus Christ. Right? If, if the church is a community of believers in Christ, then the local church comprises of believers in Christ. And membership is the church's public affirmation of a person's individual faith in Christ. That they belong to the universal church. Let me state that again. Membership is the church's public affirmation or recognition of a person's individual faith in Christ. That they actually belong to the universal church. Does that mean, so very practical, does that mean that you can't be involved or belong if you're not a member? Of course not. Does that mean that you can't attend this local gathering or shouldn't invite unbelievers to our local gathering? Right? So if what I've stated is true, that the church is a community of believers, a gathering of believers, does that mean that you can't attend this local gathering if you're not a believer? No, we welcome you. If you're an unbeliever, we're glad you're here. Does that mean you shouldn't invite unbelievers? No. You should. (laughs) You should invite unbelievers to hear God's word so they might come to know him. We welcome visitors. I mentioned this at the beginning. If you're a visitor with us, we're glad you're here. And we hope that as a result of you being with us, that you'll come to know Christ and want to make him known. Another practical implication is that since we are a community of believers, right? Since the church is a community of believers in Jesus Christ, then we should seek to do things together, right? Belong, right? We should seek to do things together where the whole church is present and can gather together. Perhaps this would foster a greater sense of community 
and belonging within us. So there wouldn't be any opportunity to feel disconnected from the church body. Right? I, I, I've been brainstorming and begin to think and begin thinking about the ways that we can do more as a church. Right? This is something that's been on my mind recently. So if you have ideas, come talk to me, right? I'm thinking of things of how can we do more stuff? <laughs> how can we get together more often as a whole body? Right? And feel like a community and be a community. Okay? So if you have ideas, come talk to me. I would love to hear them. Second implication, serve. Since the church is a community, a community of believers in Jesus Christ, then this should result in serving one another in the church. If the church is a community, then we should serve one another and get involved in the lives of one another. The church, think about this, the church as a community implies that we can't live a solo Christian life. And, as a community, it means that no longer should we view our gatherings as just a place where we get fed. And are good for the week and then return next week. Well, I just I come to church to get my food from the Word. It's not, how is the church meeting my needs, right? Because a community involves and implies involvement and interdependence and not selfish consumerism. So the question then is this. It's not, how is the church meeting my needs? Rather, how can I serve others within the church? That's the question we need to be asking. The church is not McDonald's. The church is not McDonald's, a quick drive-through service where you get your food that will sit in your belly for a week. Right? I haven't had McDonald's in a long time, but it probably would sit in my belly for a week. And then they must put something in their food because then you kind of want to go back. <sighs> Rather, it's a community. It's a body that serves one another. It's compared to a body of, it's the body of Christ, right? They serve one another. And they depend upon one another and cooperate with one another under the headship of Jesus Christ. Third implication is worship. Since the church is a community of believers in Christ, then we as the church ought to gather together to worship God. Just as God called his people in the Old Testament to assemble, did you catch why? In order to hear his word, they might fear him or to obey him, and worship him, so also, as the church, we gather together to worship and praise God. We assemble to hear God's word, hear God speak to us through his word. We gather together so that we might learn to obey Jesus Christ. And since the church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
then we should recognize that the presence of God is among us. And we should worship him. Have you thought about that? If God's presence is among us and in us, then it should transform the way we think about church. And the seriousness of, of coming together. I want to I worship God. I want to get a greater sense of your presence, Lord, this morning. In spite of all my duties and responsibilities outside of this building that I have, my jobs, my tasks, I want to gather together where God's people are together in order to honor you, in order to worship you, Lord, because we are in the presence of God. God dwells in us and among us as a people. Where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, there I am with them. So might it change our mindset and the way we think of church, and the way we think about what we do on Sunday morning. Fourth implication is witness. Since the church is a community of believers and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, since it's the temple of God, since we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, then this should lead us to bear witness to Jesus. Since the original temple, we're going to study this on Wednesday night, since the original temple is for God's mission, right, it was for a mission, it was, since the temple was to be the place where the nations would now stream and come and see the Lord. The nations would stream in. And God's name would then be made known to all the earth. We, then, as the temple of the living God, are to spread His name. Go and tell. We are to be living stones. A temple that moves. A temple that has feet, so to speak. We gather together so that we go and bear witness to Christ. So we might bring people to Christ and then come and gather together. That's the picture here. We are to proclaim and bear witness to Jesus so that all might know, come to know him. The glory of his name is to be the passion of the church. As Greg Beale rightly states, the mark of the true church is an expanding witness to the presence of God first to our families, then to others in the church, then to our neighborhood, then to our city, then the country, and ultimately the whole earth. May God give us grace to go into the world as his extending temple and spread God's presence by reflecting it until it finally fills the entire earth. This is our mission. This is the church's mission. Let's make Christ known wherever we are. As those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as the temple of God, let's not let our lives be contaminated with sin. Let's not let any defilement remain so that our witness to the gospel would not be hindered. Might God give us strength to live in community, 
with one another, to serve one another, to worship God together, and to bear witness to Jesus in order to live out our identity as a church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that you sent your son to die for us. He died for the church. He brought us, you brought us into your family. We are the family of God. We are a new community. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And I pray that you would enable us to bear witness to Jesus wherever we go. Might he be the passion of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.